Welcome to EM Guidewire, brought to you by the emergency medicine residents and faculty at Carolina's Medical Center in Charlotte, North Carolina. Core Concepts of Emergency Medicine. Welcome to this week's Core Concepts brought to you by the EM Guidewire team from the Carolinas Medical Center EM Group. Today we have myself, Natalie Wood, Jeremy Driscoll, and Greg London. Today's episode is sponsored by Speculums. Just a little bit of pressure. Speculums. Today we'll be talking about the peritonsillar abscess. So let's talk about what exactly a peritonsillar abscess is. As you can imagine by its name, it's an abscess in the tonsillar region. Wow, Jeremy, that was so profound. Thanks for that knowledge bomb. Anytime, Natalie. Specifically, though, it's a collection of infection between the tonsillar capsule and superior constrictor and palatopharyngeus muscles. Most often, affected is going to be the superior portion of the tonsil, followed by middle and then inferior. The tonsil is very unique, though, in that for such a small amount of tissue, it's very vascular with five different arterial supplies. Thanks for that clarification. Now you sound like a doctor. The bugs that are usually responsible for peritonsillar abscess are your normal mouth flora. So we're talking a polymicrobial infection most likely. Your staph, strep, anaerobes, echinella, etc. Now, the most common presenting symptoms in a patient with a peritonsillar abscess are going to be fever, sore throat, adenophagia, or dysphagia. When you examine the patient, they may have trismus. A muffled voice. That was a muffled voice for those of you who couldn't understand, and contralateral deviation of the swollen uvula. So other than using our physical exam skills, we are going to need some imaging to help confirm our diagnostic suspicion and also help plan for drainage. This is where the fun stuff happens. Point-of-care ultrasound is going to be incredibly helpful in some circumstances with procedural planning. However, if you see a huge abscess staring at you, shoving that uvula over, you can just go for it. We are going to have some amazing pictures on our show notes for this episode on draining a PTA, So make sure you check that out on the website. That's www.emguidewire.com. Nearly all the time, I recommend using an intraoral approach using an endocavitary probe. If you don't have the capability of doing this at your facility, you can attempt to use a transcutaneous approach with a linear probe. Ultrasound can be very helpful in identifying the depth of neck vasculature prior to aspiration and can help differentiate a cellulitis from an abscess when you're just not quite sure. Other than ultrasound, you could obtain CT with IV contrast. This will be helpful in differentiating a PTA from other deep space neck infections, such as a peripharyngeal or retropharyngeal abscess, in patients who are presenting with other symptoms, such as neck pain or neck stiffness. But if you are confident that your diagnosis is a PTA, you do not need a CT. Now that we've identified a PTA with ultrasound or just our own physical exam, next comes the fun stuff, drainage. Most recent studies suggest that a needle aspiration is an excellent technique used to treat PTAs, with a occurrence rate of about 10% and a cure rate of around 95%. Prior to drainage, we want to optimize our patient with a few different routes of anesthesia and analgesia. We recommend establishing an IV and giving some pain medications and steroids, specifically Catorlac and dexamethasone. Steroids have been shown to significantly reduce pain and severity in this patient population. Be aware, you may need additional sedation or procedural sedation depending on the size of the PTA or patient cooperation. Now, glycopyrrolate can be used to reduce secretions. I've never personally used that, but I want to be fancy and use it now. Just remember, you are going to have to give this to them around 30 minutes prior to the procedure because that's about the amount of time that it will take to start working. Like Dr. Wood said, anesthesia is going to be key. We're going to use anesthesia via three different routes in order to make our procedure the most successful by making the patient most comfortable. That is nebulize, atomize, and localize. 
Topical anesthesia can be accomplished with nebulized lidocaine, about 5 cc's at 2% via face mask. We augment this with atomizing 2% lidocaine directly on the posterior pharyngeal mucosa. And then finally, inject a small amount of submucosal anesthetic, 1-2% lido with epi, with a small gauge needle in the area of concern can provide a high level of anesthesia and facilitate both the posterior pharynx examination and needle aspiration. That's three ways we've targeted for optimal anesthesia. Once we've anesthetized our patient, you can use the endocavitary probe to determine depth of vasculature and how deep the abscess pocket is. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm pretty scared of that big, pulsating red thing that sits behind the tonsil. Oh, yeah, Jeremy. Big red. I'm scared of it, too. That's the carotid artery. Though always a concern, carotid injury has not clearly been documented as a complication of this procedure. Now, let's walk through a step-by-step with how to successfully perform a needle aspiration of a peritonsillar abscess. Step one, apply anesthetic spray to the overlying mucosa as we just spoke about. Nebulize, atomize, and localize. Step two, give that patient a suction. Let them use it as needed when we're draining all the pus. Step three, now this is when we become the real MacGyver here. You can use a laryngoscope for better visualization, or my favorite, and much cheaper, the disassembled vaginal speculum. You're kidding me, right? I wish I was, Natalie. You may get a lot of strange looks from the staff you're attending, but trust me, this is a pretty baller move. Jeremy, I for one am really happy that dudes can finally be subjected to the magic of the speculum. I feel like that's a quality. We're making steps in the right direction. Once you're using your speculum for lighting, as well as getting the tongue out of the way, cut the distal tip off a needle sheath of an 18-gauge needle to expose about one centimeter of needle to prevent accidentally plunging deeper than desired. I recommend using a spinal needle as it will give you some better control, especially if the patient has some trismus. Also, our ultrasound is going to show us how much of the sheath we may need to cut back to hit depth of the abscess cavity. This technique I'm describing will ideally work best with someone else assisting you because we will attach an IV extender with a syringe to the end of the needle for someone to be drawing back as you're advancing into the tonsil. We're going to have a lot of pictures in our show notes of this setup, so make sure to check them out. That's www.emguidewire.com. Finally, aspiration. Remembering back to anatomy lecture, you realize that the carotid artery lies lateral and posterior to the posterior edge of the tonsil. We want to make sure to avoid that area. Just shoot posterior, starting superior and moving inferior until you get some pus back. Now, if aspiration isn't working due to thick secretions or if there's a large volume of pus, you may need to perform a formal IND. If you're going to do this, use an 11 or a 15 blade and advance posteriorly until you see a river of pus begin to flow, an explosion of exudate. It's important here we need to make sure the patient has suction ready to prevent them from gagging and probably prevent me from gagging too. Because if the patient gags, I gag. Guys, okay, so let me just paint this picture because it sounds kind of crazy. We've got a disassembled vaginal speculum in the mouth. The patient is holding their suction. We've got a spinal needle with the tip of the cover cut off, and we're just sucking that river of pus out of their posterior oropharynx. Sounds delicious. Mm, Following aspiration, or if the cavity of pus is too small, these patients will require antibiotics to cover the bugs we mentioned earlier. If patient is non-toxic with the plans to discharge home, outpatient options include clindamycin, augmentin, or good old PEMVK. If the patient warrants inpatient admission, most guidelines recommend ampicillin sulbactam, clindamycin, or PEN-G, and metronidazole. It's dispo time. Most patients can generally be discharged with ENT follow-up. If no pus can be obtained but there is a high suspicion for PTA, admit with IV antibiotics. For our little kiddos, some studies suggest that close to 50% of pediatric patients respond to medical management alone. Speaking of little kiddos, 
Dr. Fox, can you hit us with some Peds knowledge bombs? We're lucky to have you here. Well, thank you for letting me have the microphone for a second. Careful, you might not get it back. I also appreciate you bringing up the topic of pediatrics, one of my favorite patient populations. When we talk about children, often I like to highlight the different anatomy and physiology that must be considered when evaluating and managing children. With consideration of peritonsillar abscess specifically, it is important to know that peritonsillar abscess is one of the most common deep space head and neck infections in children. The other major one that we would consider would be retropharyngeal abscess, which is generally in a younger patient population. As children age, the retropharyngeal lymph tissue atrophies, reducing the risk of this. Certainly, with consideration of anatomic issues with children, the big consideration here is size. Children are just smaller. Their posterior pharynx is smaller. Their oropharynx is smaller. Their neck is smaller. This all potentially leads to greater complication risks with spread of infection to contiguous structures in the parapharyngeal space and deeper structures. It also potentially leads to enlargement of the tonsillar pillars to an extent which would cause more airway compromise, although generally speaking, this is not a airway emergency. The other thing it can lead to, which is kind of disgusting to think about, is the tonsillar pillars can actually rupture spontaneously and you can have purulent material aspirated or swallowed. Either way, it's disgusting to think about. Now, the other thing to consider when we're discussing size is that your ability to discern a peritonsillar abscess clinically may be a little bit more limited in children because your ability to see the posterior pharynx may be a little bit more challenged. That doesn't mean that you should just default and get a CT scan. I still believe that peritonsillar abscess is a clinical diagnosis. Your vision can be enhanced. And I think positioning the child appropriately is always important. One trick I like to do is have the child sit on the parent's lap facing the parent with their legs extended around the parent's waist, and then have the child lay backwards on the parent's legs with the head slightly extended over the parent's knees. This leads sometimes to a little bit of disorientation and actually makes the mouth more easily opened. Then you just have to be prepared and have good lighting. One great way to see the posterior pharynx and displace the tongue, as we've mentioned before, is using that McGill laryngoscopic blade, which has both the tongue displacement characteristic and the light that you need. Then certainly ultrasound can play a role, as we've mentioned. Intraoral ultrasound, transcervical ultrasound, both have been found to be useful in children. The transcervical is obviously more easily tolerated and less intimidating for our pediatric patients. Remembering also that children with significant peritonsillar abscess many times will have trismus, which will further limit their already small oral opening. So this may be a preferred approach versus the intraoral ultrasound. Now, when it comes to managing the peritonsillar abscess in children, this is one time where I'm actually a little more reluctant in doing a procedure in the emergency department. Again, because of size of the child, it's less likely that I'm going to be able to fit both my ultrasound probe, my McGill blade, and my spinal needle in the oropharynx to be able to drain the peritonsillar abscess sufficiently. There's also been recent evidence that shows some of these peritonsillar abscesses can be treated with antibiotics alone potentially arguing for a trial of antibiotics first before proceeding to a procedure. Obviously, I would like to have a conversation with my friendly local ear, nose, and throat surgeon to help discuss this. Most of them, particularly the ones that I've encountered, would prefer you not try to do the peritonsillar fine needle aspiration in the emergency department. 
as again, antibiotics alone may be sufficient. And if they're not, then they usually would prefer going to the operating room and doing a incision and drainage under more controlled circumstances. Thanks, Dr. Fox. Now let's review. Topicalize oropharynx with two to four milliliters of nebulized lidocaine. You can use the intracavitary or endocavitary probe to identify the location and depth of the abscess. Cut the plastic sheet of an 18-gauge spinal needle about one to one and a half centimeters based on depth of the abscess. Obtain adequate visualization of the target with your modified laryngoscope, applying downward pressure on the tongue. Insert your needle at the target location identified on ultrasound, aiming straight back. Remember, carotid is lateral. And aspirate as much fluid as you can. And don't forget about the little kids. They may be able to get by with just antibiotics, or they may require surgical intervention for this peritonsillar abscess. Now, that's a wrap at the J. Lee Garvey Innovation Studios at Carolina's Medical Center in Charlotte, North Carolina. This is EM Guidewire. Thanks for listening to EM Guidewire. Go! Be awesome today! Seems the out. That's www.emguidewire.com. Just when I say plunging deeper, I know try not the to way that you just ready. like you're I'm so like passionate. <laughs> you're like plunging deeper. <laughs> just plunge it in there.